Hey, everyone. Welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today we have our old co-host, Chris. Hey, it's me. And frequent guest, Una. Hi. I think we can call Una uh, a co-host as well. I think you've been on enough episodes to warrant that. <laughs> I can't be on two podcasts at once. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people are, but, um, you know, that's okay. And and Chris obviously does not he he is not prioritizing uh, my anime podcast since he is late. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was prioritizing you know trivial shit like mental health. Set out your life, man. What the fuck? Yeah, right. <laughs> you got to be here talking about anime instead of yeah. being outside in nature enjoying the sun. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. What kind of goth am I? <laughs> I know, and and we're talking about something very important today. We're talking about Golden Kamui, uh, the anime about 1910s Japan. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know why I had to specify Japan. It's a fucking anime, but anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a uh, it's very popular and acclaimed anime. It takes place uh, after the Russo-Japanese War, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm hoping Chris can give uh, a little background on. I know a very tiny amount, but um, not enough to sound very intelligent about it. Just the overarching plot of it is that uh, I knew one of the majority, or sorry, minority ethnic groups of Japan amassed a huge fortune of gold by mining the rivers of Hokkaido, which is like the, um, not the northernmost, but the second largest island of Japan. And unfortunately, the placer mining techniques they used, which is like mining rivers, uh, is devastating to river ecologies, which meant that their most important food source, which is salmon, became scarce. And so the gold was viewed as a curse and hidden away in their mining operations. Oh, wait, I skipped a whole part, didn't I? Uh, they, they mined a huge fortune of gold. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> returning back, uh, the, the gold they mined was viewed as a curse and hidden away, and the uh, mining operations were shut down. And so the story starts when... Uh, someone named Noparabo killed several of the last Ainu who knew where the gold was. Um, he was sent to Abashiri Prison, which is like the maximum security prison of Japan at the time. And while he was there, he created a map to the gold's location by tattooing it on prisoners' bodies. Um, the guards caught wind of it, and they tried to move the prisoners to another facility, which allowed a political prisoner, one of the last samurai, uh, to kill the guards and let all the prisoners escape. And so the main characters, Sugimoto Saishi and Asirpa, who's a who's an Ainu girl, um, are looking for the gold. Um, in the very first episode, they get the first tattoo map piece, uh, which they have to uh, use by skinning the person that it's on uh, because of the way that it's tattooed. Which was a nice, like, dark introduction to the show. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> really gives you a hint as to the tone of the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we're just going to cover the first 50 chapters or so because uh, Una got distracted and, and Chris only recently started and um, only made it to around that point. So even though I'm on chapter, like, 182 now or something like that, um, we'll just do the first 50. I want to come back to the show anyway. Um, because there's like a lot that we could talk about with it. Um, and I think most of this episode is actually going to be talking about like the various ethnic minorities of Japan and and the history of Japan around this time. 
Um, but one one thing I did want to mention first is uh, so the, this gold that they're chasing after. It's hard to understand like how much gold there is, uh, the, how much gold it is rather, because um, you know, like in a heist movie, it's like oh. Uh, yeah, the casino's vault has, you know, $40 million in it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's very straightforward. Uh, but for this, they say it's 20 con of gold. What the fuck is a con? Um, it's a unit of mass, um, like a more traditional unit of mass in Japan. Yeah, It's around 75 kilograms of gold, uh, the, the 20 con, mm-hmm. which is a lot. Yeah. And uh, I found that at that time, 1,000 yen was worth about 25 ounces of gold. Mm-hmm. And so um, in the 1910 Japanese units, 20 con of gold would be about 110,000 yen. Um, today, that's only like $1,100. Um, because the yen prices have deflated like a lot during the 30s and after World War II. Right. Um, but in U.S. dollars of today... Uh, Using the spot price of seventeen hundred dollars an ounce for gold, it would be about four point five million dollars. So you know, pocket change. Yeah, de- decent amount of, of money. And uh, we actually find out later. I don't know if I don't know if either of you have gotten to this point, but because um, I watched the episodes kind of out of order to refresh myself. But um, at one point, they find out that the actual amount of gold they're looking for is around 20,000 con. So it would actually be about $4.5 billion that they're looking for. Yeah. 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 That was like, Oh shit. And of course then everybody gets fucking gold fever even harder. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, so let's, let's just start with, uh, y'all's impressions. Uh, Chris, what, what did you think since you're, pretty fresh off of watching it. Yeah. Um, I think, um, I'm really enjoying it. I really want to keep watching this show. Um, I appreciate, uh, I actually tweeted about this. I was like, this show is basically designed for somebody with my kind of brain because it's got a bunch of cool, like, like ethno cultural trivia and stuff. Um, it's pretty Gothic, Mm -hmm. uh, in this kind of like, you know, uh, late Meiji style. Um, and, um, just other stuff like, you know, it's got, it's, it involves people with weird tattoos. It involves like weird, like nature philosophy and like hunter thoughts and shit like that, you know, um, that is just like fun to kind of interact with mentally. Um, I, I really appreciate, um, Asirpa's really cute and fun and like, like a, a, an interesting character. Um, Mm -hmm. and the others are generally interesting. Um, I do get a little confused sometimes. Um, like who's who of the various veterans because they all wear the fucking uniform and stuff. And so like, you're like, Oh, is this like you for a minute? You're like, is this Tanigaki or the other guy? You know, like, right. (laughs) You basically have to go by their eyebrows. Exactly. Right. (laughs) You're like, this guy's slightly hairier or he has that funny line on his cheek or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty fun. Um, but it is interesting because like, if you think about, um, the effort, um, behind like, um, training and equipping and uniforming, like, you know, modern soldiers, right. Modern armies, like they're supposed to be kind of uniform and, and, Mm -hmm. and, um, hard to distinguish. And I think, 
that um, part of the story is like these guys who come back for more and then they're like, what do we do next? Right. Some of them stay in line behind uh, what's his name? The crazy guy with the broken skull. Tsurumi. Yeah. 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 And you know, some of them just kind of keep falling in line behind him and others like our, our friends, you know, our main characters are mostly trying to just figure out their life as veterans um, out here in, in the kind of Japanese frontier, if you will. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I really appreciate that that's whether it was intended specifically that way or not, um, that that's kind of part of the um, part, part of my interpretation anyway, of, of what's going on there. Um, and also just like the fact that like um, the Ainu uh, village that you see a lot of the story take place in and around um, you can see that they are kind of, they're backed into a corner, mm-hmm. um, which is really sad, um, because it's so often the case for, you know, indigenous people in an imperial setting. Um, and yet at the same time, it shows like they have a quality of life and, um, you know, sets of customs and like the, the funny, like intercultural exchanges between Asirpa and, um, God, what is What's the main character's name? I cannot remember. Sugimoto. <laughs> Sugimoto. That's right. Sorry. I, there's so yep. many, there's so many different people with similar names in this. It's, show. it's harder to remember Japanese names. You know, we don't have as much of a reference for it. <laughs> I still don't remember all the characters names. I've watched the show twice now. <laughs> right. It's like, it's like, is it Johnny or Johnny Bob or John or Jonathan? You know, it's like that, you know? So, um, but, um, I appreciate like a lot of their intercultural exchanges where it's like, Oh, I don't know. I don't want, I don't know if I want to eat that brain. You know, and then he tries and he's like, no, I guess it's not bad. Or it's like, I'm just going to tr- just tolerate it, you know? And then she thinks that Miso is literal shit, you know? And, and yeah. all this stuff. so you're like watching them like deal with it and be patient and try and sometimes just like, you know, just be awkward, which is so, so, so true when you're interacting with someone else's culture, especially in that case where one is this very like, um, um, almost mechanistic at this point, kind of modernized culture, imperial thing. Mm. Oh, we're so sophisticated. We have all these, you know, we have all this cuisine. We have all these like, you know, sophisticated modern experiences. Um, and then these other people who are like, yeah, we're like keeping specific ways that we've always kept. And we have these other things that are extremely um, distinct, right. And personal. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm also, I keep watching out for the kind of, um, kind of otherization or exoticization uh, factor when it comes to like the Ainu in particular. Um, and it seems mostly good. It seems mostly palatable. Um, but I kind of wonder if there's like Japanese tropes about the Ainu that I'm missing. Cause I don't know what they, what they typify about them. Right. Yeah. That is the hardest part. Yeah. So that's, that's my impression so far is that it's really interesting. It's really fun. Um, it's actually for such a dark show, it's actually really chill. <laughs> um, so it's really goofy. Yeah, it's like even when they're blowing each other's heads off, like it's like, yeah, it's just, this is a pretty chill watch, you know? <laughs> yeah, one of the uh, the chapter that I just read, um, one of the characters, uh, it's showing like his childhood. He gets kidnapped, and um, while his dad is coming to rescue him, he's like striking the pose that, um, what's his name? playing Freddie Mercury did for the, that queen movie, you know? Oh yeah. Like, like he drew that <laughs> literal pose, that exact pose on purpose while he was like holding some kind of, um, it wasn't a microphone. It was like a horn from a bike or something like that. But right. Um, and then like the one right before that, they're like 
chasing after the kidnappers and the guy's motorcycle like blows up and his all his clothes get ripped off so he's just like <laughs> running shirtless down the road and stuff like that it's so funny <laughs> um yeah and it i really like the food part of it too um but yeah uh uno what 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 did you think what was your impression oh uh yeah so it was actually really hard for me to get into it at all uh, okay <laughs> uh Una's part of that elite imperial culture that's too sophisticated to enjoy this kind of uh, tri- drivel, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is, like, by and large, what it is, is, you know, it's a seinen manga about mm-hmm. a treasure hunt. Yep, right. Uh, and uh, from what I've heard later on, it does get very, uh, wow, they just keep running into the people they need. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it's a bit kind of... King Arthur shit, like it's like, oh, and then we went to the Grail hunt, hunt, and then oh, they just happened to find this one weird, obscure character that we absolutely needed to find, or else nothing else would line up. Sort of plot driven <laughs> is what you're saying. Yeah, you know, like a lot of that's definitely forgivable because you know it's sure. just a manga, and obviously, <laughs> like you know, they're not going to show every like day they spend not finding anything. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so like <laughs> my immediate impression of it was very, uh, you know, it's, it's just a treasure hunt show that ha- basically treats uh, minority cultures as like a gimmick to sell it. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, th- I was like, you know, maybe I'm just being a bit mean about that. But at the same time, like reading the manga, it's very, uh, they tell the story, but then they spend like five chapters just dropping like vocabulary about Ainu culture and like. You're saying you don't want any representation in media? Is that your position? <laughs> no, For the record. I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying that the representation of it isn't really so much representation as like show and tell. Sure. Of, uh, absolutely. Actually, that was something I'm glad you brought that up. Um, if I could just say real quick that I also noticed and I was thinking like I was trying to be fair to like, well, you know, it is interesting stuff, right? But I've noticed that manga and anime sometimes do that kind of show and tell thing when it comes to some random other culture or like an encounter with the other. Is mm-hmm. they're like, hey, let me just tell you like the, the Wikipedia entry on this essentially. And you're like, okay, okay, that's three pages of stuff. Cool. You know, like, go on. Sorry. You know, it's, you know, it's just very how it came off to me. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's nice that uh, at the end of every volume, the author lists uh, citations of books he's read and, uh, you know, gives credit to, like, his language consultant for the Ainu language. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, mm-hmm. obviously he put a lot of research into this. Uh, you know, we, to a certain extent, you can trust that the majority of it isn't super fictionalized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's just sort of... Uh, reaching for reasons to make it relevant yeah just to say it and uh there's also a lot of stuff that's like lost in translation with that uh like you were saying uh the uh, ex-soldiers and whatnot are all very hard to distinguish Mm. and uh a lot of their characterization is uh a the author really likes drawing hot guys (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah oh totally yeah uh actually most of the reason i was able to continue reading at all was i was reading interviews with the author and it's very much everyone just thinks his characters are hot yeah i'm a hundred percent here for that yeah you didn't even get to a lot of the homoerotic parts (laughs) 
The author has said that he only draws nudity when absolutely necessary. So that's you know. yeah, right. <laughs> well, uh, you know what they say about necessity. <laughs> you know, a, bit, a bit of a stretch, but uh, yeah. some of their other characterization is a bit like things you won't really tell in like an English version because uh, like the seventh division or whatever. Mm-hmm. is, uh, I guess, the author describes it as uh, people from all over Japan. So there's a lot of, like, dialectical distinctions. But, mm-hmm. you know, because military and they're all working together, they all had to learn, quote-unquote, standard Japanese. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it doesn't come out very often, but you, you'll see, like, throughout, like, when they're talking to their families and whatnot, which supposedly comes up, uh, they speak in more of a local dialect. But, like... From what I've read, the uh, reason why they came from all over Japan is that the 7th Division was mostly made up of former Totenhei, which is uh, kind of a... I don't want to say that, like, you know, there isn't a lot of uh, pointing out the fact that this was a huge colonial expedition, mm-hmm. but they were pioneers mm-hmm. colonizing Hokkaido. Can you, uh, can you explain that? I, I've never heard that term. Toden, hey, mm-hmm. they uh, a lot of places will literally just translate it as pioneer. Uh, essentially, they were uh, the was it like development commission or whatever for Hokkaido. Uh, sometimes just called the colonization commission. Uh-huh. Uh, they gave land to settlers. Right. Uh, to okay, the, you know, typical thing. Uh, a lot of yeah. them were like indentured servants, essentially. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I just looked it up. Um, this is something I want to come back to when we talk more about like the history of the Ainu, but, but keep going. I just wanted to make a note that, that this has got yeah. some historical roots. Yeah. That was, you know, pretty much the whole point is that, uh, a lot of the people who came to Hokkaido to, you know, get land and, mm-hmm. uh, colonize it ended up being, uh, members of the seventh division. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. like, the, the great defenders of the North and whatnot uh, were mostly pioneers. And mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really, you know, as far as I've read, it doesn't really come up ever. But it's uh, definitely, like, an overarching context to why they're all here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, like, uh, Seiichi Sugimoto, if you will, uh he is just in Hokkaido because he thought there'd be gold. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Yep. yep. <laughs> That's like the yep. very first thing that happens. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's obvious that he'd like, you know, butt heads with the seventh division who have been at this for a while, but mm-hmm. like, you know, it's that sort of like typical setup of, uh, you know, the local uh, military, is already in on the local plot and our main character is the outsider. Right. It's basically dances with wolves in Japan. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And like the characterization of Sugimoto also is kind of weird to me. Uh, Pretty early on it's shown, uh, I believe the chapter's like literally called like persecution or whatever. Mm. Sugimoto's Mm. past of, uh, 
you know, most of his family died of tuberculosis. Oh, okay, yeah. And so he was persecuted in his hometown. He burned down his house because, you know, there's no place for anyone here anymore, so I'm going to leave. Mm, mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's why he cares so much about his war buddy's wife. That's the only reason. Because <laughs> uh, they weren't just war buddies. They were uh, from the same hometown, and he left her to his friend. Uh, so mm. uh, she was actually his love. Etc. Etc. Right, uh, but it, it kind of frames that whole story as like, oh no, Sugimoto's cool with like Ainu culture and whatnot because he gets being persecuted. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. It's a very, you know, I don't think it's a hundred percent like they're just saying like, oh, this is the only reason why he's vibing with them. Mm-hmm. It, it was sort of uh, putting that there immediately as sort of like a yeah, this is why he's cool. Uh, sort of, uh, <laughs> I guess, liberal in a sense of the can only sympathize with the plight of the Ainu people because he uh, also has been hated by the Japanese. Right, right. <laughs> the the oppression Olympics of the uh, of the tuberculosis soldier. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't Was that in the show or just or just in the backstory that you read up on? Uh, that's in the manga. Uh, I don't think it's in the show. Okay, uh, okay. I was like, I didn't pick up on that at all. That's amazing. <laughs> Your exegetical skills are unparalleled. Yeah, I was uh, <laughs> I was skipping around, so I didn't notice that um, in the show. So I, I, I can't say for sure that it's not in there. Um, and then I started reading the manga like on chapter 160-something. So mm-hmm. Yeah, the... Uh... Uh, as far as I recall, it wasn't in the anime. I only saw the first season, but it, w- it would have been within the first season. Oh, okay. If it were adapted one for one. Uh, gotcha. So, like, I guess my general impression of it was very, uh, this manga is here to uh, tell a generic story and also trivia about the Ainu, which isn't bad, per se. Uh, you know, I don't dislike it for that. I just don't view it as like a thing that I would regularly go out and be like, I want to learn about the Ainu. Let's read this treasure hunting manga. <laughs> but, you know, I guess to be fair, there are not a lot of English sources on most of this anyway. That's that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's true and uh I I've read like uh, a fair amount of the English sources that are available on Ainu and uh, much, if not most, of the information that's available in there um, about like their culture and uh, practices and stuff uh, is in the anime. Like, um, I thought I'd found something interesting about uh, the like uh, the gold mining in Hokkaido. Uh, from one of the books that I was reading, and then when I was watching the anime, I realized that uh, Huki, the the grandma, she like just completely says the exact thing that I found, which is like, oh yeah, the gold mining was devastating to the you know the river ecology and caused like pressures on um, on fishing resources that like led to conflict with the with uh, in between the Ainu villages. And uh, yeah, she just straight up says it, and I was like, "Oh, okay, I guess <laughs> I'm not getting as much of this out of this as I thought." <laughs> yeah, 
a lot of characters do seem to just sort of exposition dump uh, history. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't know, it, it sort of gives off this impression that, like, this isn't a story that is, you know, someone who's been interacting with Ainu people and discussing their culture and history and went, I want to write a story that takes place in this culture and, right. you know, wrote about a story that would. It's very, um, Sirpa's sort of an outsider. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. she's not, she's like not necessarily socially an outsider, but she constantly puts forward this whole, you know, the, the younger generation doesn't follow all the traditions and mm-hmm. she didn't have mm-hmm. any brothers. So she went hunting with her father and that's weird. And, you know, she's just goes off. She's on not like the other lot. girls. Right. Yeah. She's not like <laughs> the other girls. So her story isn't a story, you know, about, you know, someone living in an Ainu village, living their life and going on whatnot. It is someone who was already, you know, on the edge of it. And uh, she, uh, you know, Sugimoto basically says outright, like, you might be in it for revenge. I just need you to, like, help me. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's Sugimoto's story. Right. Yeah. Right. Which, you know... It was pretty disappointing, uh, but not unexpected. I do think the focus, like, uh, after where you're at, like, closer to, like, chapter 120 or so, I think the focus, like, really shifts uh, more to her. Because um, there are definitely, like, like, you'll go several chapters without even really seeing Sugimoto um, at the part that I'm at. That's something to look forward to when I actually get around to finishing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's definitely like um I, I I'm trying not to reveal too much. I'm trying to figure out how to say it without revealing too much, but like um the the conflict starts to uh center more on like what what she is going to do for the future of the Ainu than just the treasure hunt part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is like more more animating the antagonists than than the protagonists at that point. But yeah, those are all uh, those are all good criticisms. I'm too stupid to like notice when something is just an exposition dump. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, oh, this story is interesting, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so none none of that is anything that I noticed at all. <laughs> so thank you for all that. <laughs> I think it's funny when they do exposition dumps because uh, they don't tell you a lot at the same time. <laughs> Uh, like fun fact uh, Sirpa's uh, cloak or blanket that she wears is uh, Mm -hmm. the pelt of uh, Retar's parents Uh, that's fascinating yeah she just wears that all the time it's great (laughs) so you said you read a bunch of interviews did did the author like talk about what motivated him to start writing the the manga yeah uh, I'd have to like recall it fully but uh i believe it was basically something along lines of the treasure hunting concept mm-hmm. uh so i have a bunch of links to interviews but was it like he's he started thinking of that and then like kind of started reading about the i knew and thought it would be cool to put it in is it is it basically that kind of thing, or? Uh, yeah, I'd have to find it again. I okay. <laughs> honestly don't remember. Uh, 
I feel like I read one interview, but yeah, it was too long ago for me to remember too. Yeah. I saw a comment on these notes that was from November of last year, so it's been I, I've been working on the notes for a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh a lot of the I guess to just broadly put it into context, the author was uh, you know, like most mangaka originally, he was just an assistant. Mm-hmm. Uh and his only other published manga before this, and obviously the only reason anyone cares about it now was because of this, was a uh, high school hockey sports manga. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, the one guy that... Uh, I forget characters' names. Uh, the one Matagi character, the, the one he hangs out with, the big... Tanigaki. Yeah, the, the, the big... I think it was like Nihei Tetsuzo or whatever. Yeah. Uh, oh, the older one? Yeah, the, the one he hangs out with. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, he is literally just copy and pasted a uh, previous character from the uh, <laughs> high school hockey team. <laughs> <laughs> and and he was one of the players? Yeah. Uh, so just imagine that guy, but just playing high school hockey. Uh, With the gray hair and everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I put some work into figuring out why that character was, uh, because uh, there's that 1982 movie, Matagi, or the old bear hunter, that has a very similar premise to his character. Uh, but evidently that isn't uh, why. There was a, another book, I believe, about a Matagi hunter, about hunting wolves. Uh, so... The fact that he's hunting a wolf in the story, <laughs> sort of. Uh, but the uh, protagonist of that book is also named Nihei, I believe. So the author was just like, you know who else is named that? Previous character from a hockey manga. <laughs> so, you know, the, it's very much a manga, is my point. <laughs> gotcha. And uh, trying to read it as like sort of like a look into Ainu culture was very difficult. <laughs> Right. Um, speaking of that movie, the Montague movie, I have I've ordered the DVD of that from this like specialty DVD website, and uh, Una I hope is joining me for a future episode where we're gonna watch that and talk about it. Yeah, that sounds very great. I love obscure eighties <laughs> movies about things in <laughs> Japan. <laughs> um. Okay. Uh, is there anything else we wanted to talk about with the anime and manga and uh, criticisms, or what's the opposite of criticism? I don't even know. <laughs> praise. Pra- praise. Promotion. Yeah. Praise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anything else on the manga or anime before I move on to the other adulation? <laughs> Positive uh, opinions. Scintillating. Uh, Adoration. I never have them, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the guys in it are very hot, I've heard. Yeah, w- wait till you get to the episode where they eat, um, is it otter meat, I think? Something like that? Uh, it's something like that. And they, they basically have like a big gay orgy. Oh, hell yeah. Because of this meat that makes them really horny. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that That strikes me as odd, given the part that was cut out because <laughs> it was too horny. <laughs> Oh yeah, I did want to say the uh, the part about him only drawing nudity if it's necessary. One of the chapters that I just read, they were 
like uh, some of the seventh division soldiers were at this hot spring and one guy was just sitting with his cock and balls out and like letting this <laughs> waterfall pour on it. And he, he kept saying his balls were switching places. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's hard to take the author seriously on that one. It might have been a joke. Uh, yeah. A lot of the interviews are very horny. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, um, well, I guess I'll move on. One of the things that the show did for me was sent me on like this rabbit hole of reading de- reading about Ainu and other ethnic minorities of Japan, um, and. Also, like, kind of put some stuff together for me. I, I had picked up, like, part of a realization from Against the Grain, which is the other James Scott book. Um, we're currently reading Seeing Like a State um, on the podcast. Uh, this is just a little break from it because I've been reading it nonstop for months now. <laughs> um, but, yeah, reading about the Ainu and, like, the... Tatars, which come up later in the manga and the in the anime, um, and and just thinking about other minority groups like uh, the Sami in is it Norway, I think, Finland, or uh, I don't know, one of those fucking stupid countries, and uh, the Picts, yeah, and like you know, mm-hmm. uh, Indigenous Americans and so on, um, mm-hmm. kind of made me realize that all states are built on, if not genocide, then definitely ethnocide, and I think. We've already started talking about that a little bit with the Totenhe. Um, I think, Chris, you said you had something you wanted to add about them, right? Yeah. Um, is this a good time to talk about like the, the sort of the deeper history behind like the Ainu and other indigenous groups in Japan? Yeah, that's pretty much what I'm trying to get at. I mean, I guess I can. Uh, this isn't too much longer, so I'll I'll just get through this part real quick. Okay. So the the thing that made me realize was like a nation state requires the creation of a national identity to which all of its citizens have to adhere. It attempts to create a uniform culture and identity out of culturally distinct people with different ways of living, cultures, languages, belief systems, values, and so on. And you know that may have been able to work non-violently if like living in a nation state was actually beneficial to everyone involved Mm -hmm. maybe taking like several generations for it to happen but in practice uh nation states were created through like banning cultural practices and nomadic ways of life uh the enforcement of national languages forced religious conversion name registration land enclosure and the destruction of the wilds Mm -hmm. all of which we just happen to be covering in um seeing like a state but um oh and and also like specifically hunting uh other predators to extinction which um most of the characters thought had already happened to the wolves in uh Golden Kamui they were surprised to see an as a wolf because they're extinct now um but yeah that's that's just the the thing i started thinking about and part of my motivation for like starting to read seeing like a state actually but mm. Um, so yeah, what, what did you want to continue with Chris? Yeah. So, so I, I have read, uh, not the whole book, but I have this trilogy of, of, um, 
books written by George Sansom that are just a history of Japan in these various eras, right? And so I, I read, I think, probably the first couple hundred pages of the one from like, you know, from prehistory until like the 1300s. So I got up until about the eight, 900s um, when they start to um, kind of um, adopt a lot of the Chinese uh, administrative um, techniques and stuff like that really heavily and start to get into Buddhism and stuff, you know, stuff like that. But what's really interesting uh, with regards to the, um, the Ainu and other, um, you know, possibly distinct, uh, ethnic groups in Japan that are indigenous to those islands is that the, uh, the Yamato people, which are like the, um, you know, the people that are generally identified as quote unquote Japanese, um, um, they, uh, <laughs> from what we can tell, at least according to the history that I've been reading, um, they first settled Kyushu, which is that, you know, Southwestern Island off of Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there's a lot of um, um, low, low murmuring about how Korean these people might have actually been. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and <laughs> you know, some people uh, find that very intriguing and, and you know, oh, you know, what, uh, you know, what culture was this really and where did they actually kind of come from? And there was also a lot of apparent like Chinese migration early on. Um, and so there was like some early... Um, at the very least resonances, uh, with the stuff on the Korean peninsula. Um, but the, uh, the culture of the, of these people, um, was definitely distinct from, you know, who they would call the Emishi and the Ainu and so forth. Uh, who are these, you know, quote unquote, like hairy barbarians and whatever, who lived, um, to the, to the East and to the North. Um, what happened eventually, and this is like, again, this is way, way back in the, you know, early hundreds of the current era, if you will. Um, they, there are only, you know, a handful of extremely easily exploited alluvial plains in the Japanese islands, um, where you can like do a shit ton of farming and all in one place. And as we know about, you know, the formation of States, uh, and, and state like societies, uh, when you, when you can, you know, hoe a row, you, you start to have Kings and stuff. So, <laughs> so they're like, they're like, okay, we got, we got this smallish, but, but decently sized plane where we're currently settled. And then there was, I think it was, there was some kind of political split or like a bunch of, uh, you know how it is with, with people in state societies. They always talk about like crowding and overpopulation and they start to get cranky toward each other because of like political, uh, you know, ambitions and stuff. So, um, some stuff happened and um, it's a little hazy, but basically um, one of the leaders took um, a bunch of settlers over to Honshu and they just kind of walked along and they kind of expanded eastward, northward until they got to what we call the Kanto Plain, mm-hmm. which then they were like, this is the shit. This is ours now. And they like killed a bunch <laughs> of the fucking native people, of course, to keep it. And there was like war, 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 war all along the fringes of their new settlement. Uh, uh, and meanwhile, of course, you know, they were um, building up, right? They were um, accruing more and more kind of state features as well as um, think architecture and stuff, right? And infrastructure. So then um, at this point, it established uh, the area north and east of um, the Kanto Plain as kind of their frontier, and there were lots of people, um, you know, Yamato ethnic people settling all over 
um, Southern Honshu at this point, right? And this is like, I think like the uh, five, six hundreds. Um, so then uh, they started to do a few different things, right? The state was starting to become sort of a little more sophisticated. It was starting to make uh, contact, more contact with the mainland um, and talk to the Korean uh, 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 rulers and the Chinese rulers and so forth um, and start to adopt Chinese modes of of governance and things like that. Um, And at the same time, you know, they start to want to more consciously and systematically um, take over, of course, more land, <laughs> more stuff, um, and get a stronger grip on their sort of, um, well, who they see as their proper subject population, right? Well, to the kind of the North and the East where they've established a frontier, what was really interesting is, I think this is now in the 700s, roughly, um, a bunch of the Yamato people who had settled in that frontier zone, again, as they think of it, had basically become more or less, um, you know, friendly neighbors to like the Ainu, Emishi, whoever was living there. Um, <laughs> and so they were, you know, even if they didn't necessarily um, adopt each other's cultures in those areas, they were familiar with it. And there do appear to be a bunch of, you know, Ainu and other loan words into Japanese. Um, like, you know, we, we suspect that Kamui in Ainu may have developed into the, the Japanese word Kami, right? Um, Mm -hmm. it seems pretty obvious. Uh, and, and so a bunch of these, uh, you know, Yamato people who are living amongst and nearby the, um, Ainu and or Emishi, um, because again, it's not necessarily clear whether they were distinct ethnic groups or not from each other. Um, they were much more willing to hang out with them and, you know, do things like not pay taxes (laughs) and not be part of an organized (laughs) army. Um, than the people in the sort of the core, right, on the Kanto plain, uh-huh. uh, and especially, you know, close to the cities and stuff. And so <laughs> um, the central government did a very state thing to do, uh, and they decided that they were going to basically give a bunch of that, just by fiat, just give away a bunch of that land in that area to people from the core who wanted to go out and settle it actively, right, and be and be like their kind of stooges, right? So it became this deliberate kind of um, shoring up of power along that edge. And then they started to push upward and outward. And this, of course, turned into the the, um, the conflicts from which the title uh, 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 Shogun, right? The, I forget the long form, but, mm-hmm. you know. Sei Tai Shogun. Sei Tai Shogun, that's right. I was like, it's not Tai Sei, it's Sei, yeah. Uh, but but that, that, of course, is the subduer of the Eastern Barbarians. And it's from this exact process that that came. Um, And this was around the same time that the Fujiwara clan uh, was emerging as kind of like the power behind the imperial throne and retained that power for, you know, another, what, a few hundred years. So it was this whole complex process of like the creation of what we recognize as the kind of um, classical Japanese, uh, the Heian state, whatever, um, was developed in part through these processes in which the Yamato people um, were being um, kind of molded into state subjects, right? And that the frontiers were being brought under control through these settlement paradigms and settlement programs. I mean, it, um, directly in opposition to um, that kind of dissent and that friendliness with the barbarians and so forth. Um, and then as this developed, then of course, um, 
over the centuries, that frontier, quote unquote, got pushed further and further and further uh, north and east and north um, until, yeah, um, it was up to Sendai and then it was up to uh, Hokkaido. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the rundown there. But it was really interesting how there was that confluence of those different processes, right, that the state became itself in a way, partly through um, its uh, like you kind of have mentioned that the ethnocide, the, the, the genocidal process. Mm-hmm. Right. So. So uh, I'll add a couple things. Uh, one thing is the Emishi. This is according to um, Brett Walker, uh, who wrote one of the books that I've been reading. There's like speculation that the Emishi may have just been a term for barbarians and it might have been like multiple different cultures. Right. And it like only later was perceived as a distinct culture outside the realm of the Japanese state. Yeah. Um, I also put certainly the most famous Emishi is Ashitaka from Princess Mononoke. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But uh, also, let's see. He said they seem to uh, have a mostly tributary relationship to the Japanese state. They brought horses to them. Um, There's also a group called the Watarishima Emishi that may have actually been the Ainu or like the proto-Ainu. And they brought animal skins as tribute rather than horses. And uh, the name translates to Emishi who crossed from the island, uh, as in Ezo, which is, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Hokkaido, Sakhalin, and whatever the fuck the other one is. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kirill. Um, and there's speculation that the Hiraizumi Fujiwara, which is that uh, military clan that you were talking about, um, mm-hmm. may have had Emishi people in important positions because mm-hmm. they and their children's bodies were mummified, which is how um, Sakhalin Ainu chiefs um, and the uh, Tungus, I don't know if that's, pronounced correctly, but indigenous Siberians and other Eurasian people um, dealt with their dead. One of the like speculations of the origin of the Ainu is that they came from the interaction of like the uh, barbarians of the Japanese islands mm-hmm. and the continental um, people from like Russia. So uh, oh, I and I remembered something I was going to say earlier. It's it's weird to me that like um, the earliest Japanese supposedly came from Korea because if you look at a map, the gap between like co- the Korean Peninsula and the closest part of Japan mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is like way bigger than the gap between like Sakhalin and the tip, the northernmost tip of Hokkaido. Um, so it seems like it would be harder. Uh, for someone to go from Korea to Japan than to go from like Southeast Russia to Japan. Yeah. The, let's see, the Watarishima, um, Watarishima Emishi, which I already mentioned, they show similarities to the Satsumon culture, which is like an extinct ethnic group from Northern Honshu and Southern Hokkaido. Um, they were like fishing people because they had harpoons um, they also hunted because they had a lot of arrowheads and uh, they did some sort of agriculture, like small-scale green agriculture. And oh, they share similarities with Ainu farming because they have elevated grain storehouses to keep mice out. 
which is something that the Ainu villages uh, commonly used, but not the the Yamato Japanese. Oh, and uh, on, on the subject of the the term for like Japanese Japanese mm-hmm. or whatever, um, there was another book that I read called uh, Beyond Ainu Studies, and they they discuss the question of like are the Ainu part of Japanese history or not. Um, and the conflict is on one hand to give the Ainu like agency as historical subjects, but on the other to give them agency in the modern Japanese nation state. And um, by making Ainu completely distinct from the Japanese, then like Japanese-ness in the modern sense becomes like culturally and ethnically monolithic. Um, and many histories basically make the Ainu non-distinct from the Japanese because it, it's essentially all about how they were oppressed by the Matsumai clan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was a um, historian named Sa- uh, Sasaki Toki- Toshikazu, goddamn. Um, and he said, even the best intent- intentioned attempts to incorporate the Ainu into narratives of Japanese history will relegate them to the fringes because from the standpoint of the center of the Japanese state, they were. Um, but by focusing on the Ainu realm, um, which is often called Ainu Mosir, uh, the relationship can be inverted. So like the Japanese would be on the fringes. And so because of that, um, to talk about the Japanese, he actually uses like a semi pejorative word that the Ainu created for the Japanese, which is Shamo, which is like, mm-hmm. uh, they compared it to Howley for Hawaiian people to talk about like, you know, uh, white foreigners. Um, so it's like that that level of derogatory, not like a racial slur, but you know, like I fucking fucking Shamo, like fucking Howley kind of thing. Oh, uh, okay. Um, yeah, that's that's all I got from that particular bit. But um, so I have like a lot on the Ainu. So uh, I do want to talk about some of the other groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Una got a decent amount of info on the Matagi. Um, do you want to talk about the Matagi bit, Una? Uh, decent amount is a bit of a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> indecent amount. <laughs> <laughs> no, there just, like, literally are no, like, accessible English sources on them. And, uh, you know, I, I'd like to say I did good research, but I'd open a lot of pages and just be like, oh, shit, this is all in Japanese. Uh, but I, I guess the, uh, you didn't learn Japanese for my podcast. What the hell? I didn't learn Japanese for my article on Hokkaido in 2018 and I'm not doing it now, <laughs> <laughs> which actually did touch on a lot of the things. That's how I know about the Toten Hay. But, uh, the thing with the Matagi is that, uh, it is kind of questionable. Like if you could really refer to them as like an ethnicity, it's right. Yep. That was one of the questions I had and never answered. Yeah, that's know, it just sort of comes down to the concept of ethnicity and how a lot of it is uh, attempts of like tracking down evolutionary and genetic lines. And you know, personally, I don't really support doing that to begin with. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> all that really matters is that uh, the Matagi is a culture. Yeah. Primarily of hunting, and they have uh, something of a pretty large vocabulary, more or less unique to them. Okay. 
and it's uh, as is expected, a lot of it is uh, terms taken from Ainu language. Okay. And, uh, you know, that's really all there is to that is that they were essentially like northeastern Japan uh, Hanshu mm-hmm. uh, hunters that took a lot of ideas from Ainu hunting strategies and language and whatnot. And if anything, it really just more, I guess, as far as anything available in English goes, it, it points to a lot of like interesting discussion of Japanese dialects uh, because uh, standard Japanese as it were is kind of a very uh, it's like received pronunciation okay you know it's it's a dialect very contrived and not related to how people actually talk yeah it's very much the uh, this is how upstanding citizens from Tokyo talk gotcha <laughs> and uh, as this is a podcast about anime, I will take this opportunity to mention that anime sucks about this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, In what way? <laughs> uh, particularly a uh, pretty well-known dialect uh, uh, to the point where it is usually the other, uh, you know, the Kansai dialect. Uh, is usually used in anime to denote otherness. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is a country bumpkin. They speak different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it just sort of comes up in what are usually, like, lighthearted, uh, like, workplace or high school anime uh, where there's just the one character who's trying their best to speak standard Japanese, but every once in a while slips into their hometown dialect. <laughs> right. Things like that. Uh, so, kind of uh, shifting through that sort of concept when it comes to the Matagi is kind of. I'd like to do a more extensive research, but it definitely requires knowing Japanese. Right. Yeah, it's funny about Kansai um, because, you know, Kansai developed in the, what, the Kinki region, which is like fucking Osaka and shit, which is so it's basically just like central and also archaic seat of Japanese civilization uh, dialect. Um, and it's like urban as fuck. So, <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's just like if you decided to typify um, like LA dialect as distinct from DC dialect at, to denote like bumpkin talk, right? You're like, well, it's no, but it's a huge metropolis <laughs> and, and the capital used to be there. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, it's the Enaka, the, the countryside, of course, is all around those cities, but it, it's still funny to me. Dialects. <laughs> so there is, there is one English language book on the Matagi um, that I looked for on Libgen. It's not there. And I'm thinking of getting it and seeing like how hard it would be to digitize it so I can throw it up there. And I don't know if, Una, did you see the National Geographic article about the Matsuki? I saw a few articles. Uh, I don't really remember which ones, but I believe I saw Nat Geo one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. The the people who wrote that one wrote this book. Um, so I think it's just like an extended version of the article, uh, which uh, one thing I noticed about that article, it, like the person that wrote it was supposedly like the first or the, the second photographer to ever be allowed to observe the Matagi practices. 
Um, the first one was a like a Japanese person, and this guy was just like an American or something. Um, and uh, I don't think his photos are good. <laughs> like one of them is like, oh, look at this ritual they're doing where they're like they're doing like a spiritual offering with like a bottle of sake and uh, a bear heart, and you don't see the bear heart at all, and it just looks like a bunch of guys sitting like around a table and looking at a guy who's like standing and facing the wall. <laughs> yeah. The, see, the Matagi have a lot of rituals and nobody will ever talk about any of them. And it's very hard to find yeah. anything that's like conclusive about it. Right. Like, uh, as I previously mentioned, there was uh, a bit that, uh, I honestly don't even remember if it was in the manga or not, but it definitely wasn't in the anime. Uh, it's a, yeah, what what's his face? <laughs> Tanigaki. Yeah, uh, with uh, Nihei, uh, they do a ritual that's it, it's essentially an initiation ritual. Uh huh. It involves something about stoking a fire with your dick out, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, you know, like no, there's no sources on that in English whatsoever, uh, and. I guess, as to be expected, most of the mentions of their culture at all are very similar to, like, Golden Kamui about Ainu culture, where it's just, it was a book about something, and they needed to have, like, a little section to explain it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is uh, wonderful, and makes me very happy. But uh, (laughs) as far as I can tell from those, uh, for the most part, like... uh, you know, obviously, it's very borrowed from Ainu culture, uh, especially with the spirituality and the idea of like mountain gods and whatnot. Yeah, they seem they seem to worship bears to some degree, like Ainu. Yeah, and uh, I know there's like an anecdote. Uh, it might have been the previous guy who was observing the uh, Matagi culture. Or it might have been the latter one, but uh, one of them was saying something about uh, essentially uh, the gods of the mountains uh, have low self-confidence. Aw. <laughs> <Aww. laughs> right, and uh, they, they perceive themselves to be ugly, so the, uh, the Matagi, uh, you know, make offerings of things that are, you know, ugly, certain plants and... Uh, vegetation in general and uh, essentially the anecdote was about uh, the Matagi hunter he was paired with at the time just took his dick out as like uh, well you know this is what we have at the time because <laughs> his dick is ugly is that what it's supposed to be <laughs> yeah well like, I guess that's the general concept of uh, dicks are typically considered ugly in <laughs> most cultures uh i don't get it but that's it's a shame really yeah uh but you know that's a weird response to like um hey buddy sorry you feel bad about being ugly i got you this ugly cup to you know make you not feel so bad about being ugly yourself yeah, but, you know, like, a, a lot of spirituality is very like that. Like, you know, the gods feel this way, so, you know, we have to uh-huh. do our best to please them uh, as a reaction to that. Well, that's fine. I just think it's like, if someone feels bad about being ugly, I don't think my response would be like, let me get you some ugly things. <laughs> yeah. 
But I guess if you're offering things like what qualities could you pick to make them feel better about that? I don't know. No, I imagine if like if you sat there in a mountain for several millennia and just sort of like hated how you looked, just people every once in a while <laughs> coming up to remind you, like, no, there's some ugly shit in this world and you're not it. <laughs> I, I, I could see that being calming in a way. <laughs> yeah, when you put it that way, I, I think I agree. <laughs> One one thing I did find about the Matagi is they, they date back to the 17th century, which I think does support the borrowed a lot of their things from the Ainu, whatever you call it. Man, my brain is fucked right now. <laughs> um, Tradition, <laughs> culture. Speculation, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah. Um, okay, so maybe we'll get more uh, about the Matagi by the time we get to that old bear hunter movie. Um, I'll try and order the book. The only reason I hesitated is this like 40, 35 or 40 euros or something like that, which is kind of a lot. Obscure books are like that. Uh, yeah. Try finding libraries that decided they don't want it. I don't think it's going to be in the library. I can check, but I think it's one of those. It seems like they have a whole company that they created for like two books. And that's the main one that they're trying to sell. So, Una's hot tip about obscure academic literature is uh, that universities typically stock their libraries by given lists of recommended books and put no effort beyond that. And a lot of those books no one actually reads, so they sell them off later. (laughs) I will look then. Um, The closest university to me is George Mason, which is, I don't think they're, I don't know if they're going to have that. Yeah. Oh, I just got some book from the 70s that's usually going for like $80 for like $12. So, so. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um. Okay, let's see. Uh, I will talk about the Wilta a little bit, even though they are, that stuff doesn't come into like chapter 159 or something. <laughs> um, but they are uh, one of these like uh, more continental uh, minority groups. They are in the western part of Sakhalin. And uh, they practice sky burial, which to me is like the coolest way to bury your dead. (laughs) Um, If you don't know what that is, it's like you basically put their body uh, kind of elevated somewhere and uh, scavengers just like eat your corpse. Um, It's done in, uh, what's it called? What's that? Tibet, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, by the time of the show, their culture was sort of disappearing because, uh, a lot of them were being converted to Russian Orthodox Christianity. Mm. Um, but they're nomads. They live in tents, uh, during the summer and they have a winter house. Um, that was like something I found really interesting was like all of these groups have summer and winter homes and they're basically like built differently out of different materials in different locations. Um, and the summer home tends to be like more mobile, like more like a tent or something that can be like moved. Um, and the winter home is just like a, a box with a fire in it. <laughs> yeah. So they have summer winter homes. Uh, they, Kira Ronke says they measure their wealth by the number of reindeer they have. Um, so they're like pastoralists. Basically they graze reindeer, um, but they don't, they don't ever eat the reindeer they seem to just milk them and make like cheese and butter out of the milk. Um, and they hunt wild reindeer for their meat because 
supposedly the domesticated reindeer meat tastes worse. Hmm. Which I guess I could see for various reasons. Um, but I don't know a ton about that stuff, so. Well, I imagine the uh, the depression that, that results from imprisonment would, would make your flesh taste pretty <laughs> shitty, so. <laughs> well, they do seem to let them, like, roam pretty freely because one of the things that happens is Ogata shoots a reindeer and then they walk up to it and they're like, uh, this reindeer has a collar on. That's weird. <laughs> and then they hear a guy calling for his reindeer to come home. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, another, another bit around this part that I liked was, uh, Ogata gave, uh, an Iwilto woman, a set of needles with like a needle case. And he explained that they're like extremely important and that there's a well-known saying that, the woman who doesn't cry when she loses a baby still cries when she loses a needle. <laughs> um, yeah, and the all, the only other thing I have is like story details, so I won't uh, talk about that. But um, there's one more group that I have down here, um, which is the NIFC. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and I didn't really get like any information on them. Um, that's I think that's the hardest one to find. And uh, we don't see them until like chapter 179 or something like that. So um, if I do another episode on this, I'll come back to them. Um, unless I... Una, you, you didn't happen to look up anything about them, did you? Uh, you see, the thing about a lot of these cultures is that uh, most of the literature is in Polish. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Makes sense because it's so close to Poland. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, it is kind of relevant to uh, culture in Hokkaido. Uh, that uh, There's like a whole like cultural exchange with Poland there now. Uh, because some guy who tried assassinating the Tsar got uh, pushed out into forced labor on Sakhalin. And he just sort of like did sociology instead. <laughs> uh, That's what I'm going to do if I ever get sent to a, a labor yeah. prison island or whatever. <laughs> he wrote quite a few books. Uh, I, I think there's like four volumes of his collected works uh, on different cultures and languages in that area. Uh, I'll try saying his name, but it's Polish. It's like uh, Ronosław uh, Piłsudski. Okay. The, the L-crossed thing in Polish is impossible to pronounce. And I, uh, oh, yeah. I don't know how to do that. Someone someone shared me this, like, part of a Polish movie where this guy, Polish guy, is, like, trying to hide from the Nazis, and he does it by having a really impossible to spell name, which is, like, Grzegorz Brzezakiewicz. <laughs> yeah. It's Polish it's a funny is, clip, but uh, anyway, it's very Eastern European, but spelled wrong. But uh, <laughs> the point is, there's a statue of him in Hokkaido. It's it's great. Uh, okay, but uh, only a couple of the volumes I've been able to find any sort of English translation on. But uh, they do have a long list of references of other works to read about it. So you know, if you're ever looking. To learn more about things, he's got you just in Polish. <laughs> Don't know if I'm dedicated enough to learn Polish for the podcast. 
<laughs> oh, I, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with you learning Japanese, but you know, if I have to learn Polish, that's a bridge too far. I, I, I guess generally, uh, volume four is uh, materials for study of Tungusic languages and folklore, and it's got a whole bunch of stuff about. Yes, Tungusic uh, languages. Oh, that's a very questionable term because it comes from like some word for pig. But you know, people are the way they are, <laughs> and <laughs> so. Uh, but yeah, there's there's definitely things about stuff over there. There's rare and uh, difficult for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe uh, maybe I'll start a PhD on this, and uh, you know. Just start reading about that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So I have a bunch more stuff on the Ainu if we want to talk about that. Um, We talked about the Fujiwara clan, but not the Matsumai clan, which kind of, I think they sort of shared territory. You said the Fujiwara clan was like the, they were basically the most powerful during the Heian period, right, Chris? Yeah, they were... um... They were kind of like um, I don't know, like the Clintons or something. Okay. Except they were, you know, <laughs> like like they were just like they had their fucking shit and everything. Um, and um, yeah, one of their one of their uh, ways that they kept power and and maintained power is they kept marrying their daughters to um, emperors. So you know that's that's a way to do that. Uh, and so they basically just exactly like the Clintons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, just marry Chelsea to Donald Trump, you know, and you're done. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they, they, they just kind of, they just kind of like, um, clawed and crawled their way to the top in like, I think the six and seven hundreds. And then, um, and then just kind of like, uh, politicked their way into the Imperial bedroom in a sense. And then we're there for a long time. Okay. Um, so the Matsumai clan is like the um, they held the northernmost part of Honshu, and they had like rights granted to um, basically like exclusive trade with Hokkaido and the Ainu. Mm. This is, I wrote down they resided in Wajinchi, but I feel like that's just the name for Honshu. Um, but I also say it's a province on the southern peninsula of Hokkaido. So. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, um, most of their wealth and power was derived from Ezo and the Ainu mm. um, in like a kind of vassal relationship. Um, Chris and I did that episode on the Kokudaka system, and um, the daimyo were those who had over, I think it was 50,000 koku of land. Mm. And uh, the Matsumai clan were the one exception to that. They were granted like a special status of daimyo because they were on the the frontier. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they basically like got all these special exceptions and permissions to deal with the the people of Ezo. M- much of the history of the Ainu uh, before the modern period was all focused on the Matsumai clan. They had a border on uh, between Wajinchi and Ezochi. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was basically a one-way border. Like the, the Japanese people could go to Hokkaido whenever they wanted. Um, but the Ainu were mostly kept out except for like, um, I think there was like a trading post that they could go to, um, in that area. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and a lot of the the Shamo depend on the ability to cross the border to apply their trades. Um, so it was very much a one-way border. I have some a little bit on the emergence of the Ainu. So I think this was from Brett Walker's book. Uh, starting from 1223, uh, a port city called uh, Tosa Minato on the Tsugaru Peninsula established trade between Honshu and Ezogashima, which I think is just another word for Ezochi. Um, that's that's the thing about this book. <laughs> he introduces all these names and places and terms and never explains any of them. So <laughs> Love it. May as well just fucking learn Japanese. <laughs> yeah, they're usually just suffixes. I don't know why people refuse to hyphenate these things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the MEC sent salmon and animal skins on tax-exempt ships and received Japanese goods in return. Uh, so they were like taxing the other like trade ships um, that weren't like the official ones. Um, and so like the trade and increased administration of the border between Honshu and Ezo led to the emergence of the Ainu culture. So like it's it's basically speculated that like the Ainu kind of emerged as um like their culture came from the interrelation between uh the the barbarians and the state, so to speak. Uh-huh. Right. But of course it's like, you know, the very contested history since there's perspectives on like you know wanting to make the Ainu like a distinct people and uh people who basically are like uh nationalists or whatever right and I, I i don't know enough to distinguish um you know what's good information and what's not so i'm just going to say everything that i've <laughs> that i've read so far <laughs> <laughs> um one of the most important events uh in Ainu history is Shakushain's war um, which Brett Walker compared to King Philip's War in the pre-United States Americas. Do you know about that war? I read about it and then didn't write anything down. So, <laughs> King Philip's War. King Philip's War. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was. Um, it was basically. Um, it's it kind of. It's one of these frontier things, right? Like I was saying about like the you know the various conflicts that the Japanese had with. Um, the indigenous, uh, mm-hmm. well, you know, the indigenous people of Japan, <laughs> of Honshu, and then eventually Hokkaido. But yeah, King Philip's War was essentially between um, the New England colonists um, and their various indigenous allies versus, um, um, well, King Philip was like the nickname of one of the uh, indigenous chiefs. And so oh, okay. I don't know how they gave him that nickname, you know, it's some probably some colonial <laughs> bullshit, but they basically, I'm sure his name sounded just like Philip. <laughs> right. right. Um, surely. Uh, but yeah, basically there was some kind of, there's some kind of conflict, you know how it goes in this, these fucking colonial histories. There's always some excuse for somebody to go after somebody. Um, usually the white people are wrong. Um, and, um, <laughs> Or if they're, you know, if they're right in the moment, it's for the wrong reasons, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically, there was just a war between the colonists and the indigenous people. That's all I really remember. But uh, I think it was pretty. I think it was pretty bloody. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that's that is similar to this. Um, so basically, uh, the Ainu like started experiencing like strain on their resources, and 
I don't think gold mining had started yet, um, but gold mining contributed to mm. the resource strain later. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also like bans on farming. I think those were in effect at this point. Mm. Um, so like the Matsumai clan at, at some point banned the Ainu from farming uh, to the point where like some people tried to uh, start a farm and they like came and ripped it all up. Oh, Jesus. But so like uh, there were increased uh, border disputes over the like fisheries and hunting grounds that were shared by different Ainu groups. Uh, part of the problem was that they had like these loose borders that moved around mm. um, between Kotan mm-hmm. and because like, you know, Prey moves around and fish migrate and and so on. Right, right. So well, it's, it's it's very much like what happened with the indigenous Americans and their particular you know ways of sustaining themselves and and you know mm-hmm. where like they had just a different paradigm of using or being on the land. You know, and 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 obviously anyone who depends on hunting, like you said, is gonna like you're gonna have to follow your prey around and, and the prey moves from season to season, so you move from season to season and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and um, so the the trade that the Matsumai clan set up um, kind of caused people to start over hunting and overfishing because they weren't just doing that for subsistence anymore; they were doing it for trade as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, what happened was uh, in an Ainu clan that was seen as like more loyal to the Matsumai, and this uh, clan that was seen as kind of uh, powerful within the Ainu, uh, which was led by Shakushain, mm-hmm. uh, they started fighting each other, and it uh, quickly escalated to the Ainu and the Japanese fighting one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like various interpretations of the war, which uh, one of which is you know ethnic hatred, but it's a lot more complicated than that since... You know, just in that barely coherent summary that I just gave, <laughs> um, there was an Ainu clan that was like loyal to, seen as loyal to the Matsumai, and so, um, and and on top of that, there were like um, Japanese fisheries that Ainu worked at, and so, you know, it's it's much more complicated than a ethnic um, conflict, but. Mm-hmm. Basically, the result was a bunch of Ainu Kotan got destroyed. Um, like some Japanese died, but the losses on the Ainu side were greater than the losses on the Japanese side. Mm-hmm. And in response to that, I think they created like new prohibitions on um, on the Ainu. I honestly thought I wrote <laughs> a better summary than that, but that's that's what I got. that was that was like the last major war there was one before that that was called uh kosha mayin's war these guys all have the same kind of name uh and uh i don't i don't have much on that but it was like uh it ended up with a victory for the ainu the japanese lost a bunch of forts which is kind of cool sucks to suck (laughs) There was a like a lesser conflict that happened later called the Kunashiri Menashi Uprising, mm. and that happened in 1789. And 
this was one of the things that uh, a historian brought up in that article um, about like I knew identity and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because this also had some like conf- uh, complex overlaps between you know the sides of the conflict. Yeah. Um, and the Matsumai basically operated like prior to this by exploiting existing political conflicts and systems of control. So like the Ainu villages obviously like had their own system of politics. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't all, you know, perfect, whatever. Um, so the Matsumai clan ruled mainly by, you know, befriending and controlling the right people. Mm-hmm. Right. Until this 1789 uprising, which started off as a labor dispute um, and erupted into ethnic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Matsumai sent a bunch of troops who eventually beheaded 37 Ainu. Um, and so the shogunate, uh, about 10 years later, which very long time to make this decision, uh, were like, uh, you guys are mistreating the Ainu. This is not working anymore. <laughs> um so after this, shogunate officials kind of took over the administration of the Ainu, and that kind of exposed them directly to the Japanese state, mm. and it also limited the power of the local Ainu leaders, um, who basically like had to go through intermediaries between um, them and the Japanese state, and yeah, so that that was a kind of pivotal moment for Ainu culture. I didn't write this down, but I. I think right around the beginning of the Meiji restoration, I, th- I think it was in 1899, there was like a specific uh, prohibition on a lot of Ainu cultural practices. And that was obviously an attempt to force them to assimilate into, you know, Japanese identity. Yeah, it was uh, 1899. It was like a protection act. Yeah. I hope I didn't say 1999. No, you said 1899. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, it was Meiji era protection act banned uh, I believe it was fishing, hunting, and woodcutting. Okay. Uh, very cool. Very helpful for the locals. Yeah, good stuff. For sure. The last thing I will mention, because we're starting to approach uh, an ideal stopping point. Um, I knew political economy. Hmm. Uh, so the I knew had chiefdoms called petty war uh they were formed of several villages along a watershed or river and they were divided along the boundaries of subsistence practices um this is kind of what i was talking about with the the borders that they're obviously not borders in the modern sense but like you know claims on uh land um well i guess that is like borders in the modern sense anyway uh so uh Petty Wars inhabitants linked their identity to a, uh, I think it's pronounced Sine Itokpa, mm. uh, which was a patrilineal household at the center of the Petty War. And they had self-declared rights to exploit resources within that productive space, the author's words, not mine, uh, which were articulated and sanctioned metaphysically rather than economically or politically. Um, and they were authenticated by a sacred relationship that Ainu groups cultivated with local Kamui. Um, I don't like the way the guy writes, but what choice do I have but to read this? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if I don't know if exploiting resources was like the way that they viewed it, but that's just how the author 
put it. So, um, but so they had like uh, lots of different subsistence practices. Um, they had deer hunts in the autumn that provided survival food for winter. Um, salmon and trout, which they fished in the uh, summer and autumn, were also very important food sources. The the fluid boundaries could sometimes cause conflict between chiefdoms who had overlapping claims on fish or game. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, the conflict was escalated when Shamo trading posts went up. Um, in the early 17th century, so actually this might have overlapped with Shakushain's war, um, the Matsumai began running salmon fisheries and placer mining operations. Placer mining is like mining rivers. Um which spread all over Hokkaido like very quickly. Like they started in, I think it was like 1719, and then by like 1740, they were basically all over Hokkaido. Um, there was a an interesting bit. A Portuguese missionary was in Hokkaido at this time, and he had a very specific description of how these mining operations worked. So he said, uh, their way of extracting gold from these mines is as follows. When they have decided on the mountain range in which, according to experts, there ought to be gold, uh, friends and acquaintances get together and, united in a body, purchase from the dono of Matsumai so many L's, um, and in brackets, one L is about 45 inches, of one of the rivers which flow through uh, the said range for so many bars of gold, and they must pay these bars whether they find gold or not. And when a great number of such groups come to the river, they divert the flow of water along a different course and then dig into the sand, which remains, until they reach the living stone and rock beneath the riverbed. Uh, And the sand lodged in the uh, rents and fissures of the rock is found gold as fine as beach gravel. So basically, like, they purchased uh, rights for, like, a little tranche of the river, and they had to pay them in gold. Um, so there, it was like a form of speculation um, of this era. And so in 1724, uh, long after the uh, gold mining had started, there were reports of widespread Ainu starvation due to poor salmon runs. There's one village where like 200 people starved to death. And then um, there were other reports from other areas that were um, almost as bad as that. <clears throat> and there was even an Ainu epic poem that suggested that gold mining was the cause of Shakushain's war. Mm-hmm. And a report from a Hirosaki spy also connects Shakushain's war to poor salmon runs, but uh, because of Shamo merchants using huge nets to catch salmon for sale rather than because of gold mining specifically. Um, and so in the 18th century, the Ainu imported a lot of rice from Wajinchi, and there is, uh, this is the prohibitions on uh, grain farming that I was talking about. There were, mm-hmm. there was evidence of that. Um, there is a report of an attempt by Ainu to grow rice being destroyed and punished by officials. Um, and in 1888, a report showed that the Matsumai family imported 66.7 thousand koku of rice, and they used 10 thousand koku of it to trade with uh, the Ainu. Hmm. Um. Yeah. So I think since I'm going to come back to the show later, uh, I'll save the other stuff that I've read for another time, especially because we're starting to run a little long. Um, but did either of you have anything else you want to add? 
you do have a, a note here about the uh, exports of the Shogunate, uh-huh. despite their images of isolationist. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I, I do think, uh, you know, as with like a lot of the military history and whatnot here, you know, the idea is that things are always a bit more complex than A versus B. And uh, the, uh, the Sakoku uh, policies were, you know, nominally no exports uh, or trade uh, to, you know, block Christian spread and whatnot. Uh, but they did have, I believe it was Nagasaki mm-hmm. open for Dutch and Chinese traders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, if I may offer an anecdotal evidence of how uh, just Dutch and Chinese means anyone that the Dutch and Chinese are cool with. (laughs) Whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you imply that vectors are, in fact, basically representative of everything they come in contact with. Like COVID or something. Um, uh, Well... A lot of uh, foreign conception of Japan throughout the Sakaku period, uh, you know, of the Edo period and such, came from a book written by German Engelbert Kempfer, real German name, who uh, was in Japan in the late 17th century uh, because he had connections. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, (laughs) yeah, the... uh, you know, there was there was a significant amount of trade, and I guess uh, honestly, my uh, my background notes for this start with uh, the Battle of Sekigahara. So you know, I was really into <laughs> fully contextualizing uh, early twentieth century Japan. Uh, mm-hmm. What's that book? Lies my lies my teacher told me or whatever. This is lies my Wikipedia article told me. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, I guess other interesting notes about the uh, the end of the uh, Edo period, the uh, Bakumatsu, if you will, is that uh, a lot of the political economy stuff uh-huh. was actually uh, basically in an attempt to stabilize their economy that was falling apart constantly for 200 years. Uh, they uh, started monopolizing things. So, uh, you know exclusive rights to specific merchants kind of stuff. So a lot of like gold trade and whatnot, I guess would be interesting to look further into exactly like how they were handling the rights and whatnot towards, I guess that'd be mid 19th century. Yeah, that would be a good thing to look into. My personal question of the period is why the hell did the Shinsengumi care? (laughs) (laughs) That is a good question. If anime is anything to go off of, it seems like they just have uh, a like mental illness that makes them obsessed with punishing evildoers. Well, they were cops. Um, yeah, <laughs> but also they they were samurai, and samurai were like mostly poor at the time. Hmm. Okay. Uh, they lived off stipends that were essentially established at the beginning of the Tokugawa shogunate, and uh, mm-hmm. things changed. <laughs> and 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 things changed. The understatement of the fucking last five centuries. Yeah. So then, so then after they were like the pinnacle of Japanese power in society, 
I don't know, things changed and they got really into poetry and philosophy, but mostly it was about them and how they should be at the pinnacle of power in society. And then they got owned by some boats. And so then they were like, ah, so things changed some more and they decided to change their haircut as well. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's basically the cliff notes of it. And they became like businessmen instead. <laughs> the point is, the big, strong, cool samurai character in Golden Kamui was Shinsengumi. And yes. uh, why did they become cops? Like, they became farmers, and it was good. They all should have just yeah. become farmers. Yeah, agreed. Well, but you know, different cast, right? So, yeah. yeah well, they had to lower themselves to become yeah. farmers, but who cares? Right, right. I don't think it was that much lower, though, because I think. It was like samurai and then farmers and and then like merchants merchants and, yeah. and burakumin were at the bottom. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's something I think there was something between like peasants and uh merchants. They were like uh, mm-hmm. the merchants were like very low class. It was like artisans or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah. 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 Um Yeah. <laughs> we didn't even really get to the Russo-Japanese war stuff either. Um Yeah. So I think I think if I come back to this, I want to do um, a little bit of detail on the Meiji Restoration, especially because they start mentioning like the whatever they call the founding fathers type characters of the Meiji Restoration history. Um, they're mentioned a lot, and the three revolutionaries that pop up later in the story um, are compared to them like a lot. And there's a much more complex history than I knew about. Yeah, that's why I started with Sekigahara. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, honestly, we could just do like a whole episode on explaining why the Russo-Japanese War happened. Yes, which uh, I was about to say, I think we should do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, or at least I should. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I guess we just have to cut it off, basically. Um, Chris, did you have any last thoughts you wanted to add? Um, no, not really. I was just going to try to like go for like a, explain the whole Russian, like a total filibuster. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, you got to understand. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, uh, not, nothing really to add, um, especially considering, you know, we're, we're really trying to just, you know, focus this on the, you know, Golden Kamui and, and, and Ainu history and their political tensions and, and, and stuff. Yeah, I don't really have much to add. Um, just has all the forces of history in it. That's the problem. Yeah. Yep, that's it's it's the it's, the, it's, it's what plants crave. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was gonna um, say like I really tr- I was really hoping that there would be more information in all these fucking books I have about Japan. But you know the Ainu do have the unfortunate uh, situation of being basically like you know um, um, not even written out of history, but like unwritten out of history. Uh, you know, there's like a few mentions of them mostly to do with um, just their armed conflicts with the Japanese early in the, mm-hmm. you know, it's literally just in the 700s and stuff and and not much else. And I'm like, oh, damn, you know, like, shit, I guess I'm just not going to learn much about them. <laughs> I'm just going to, unless I learn Polish. Well, they basically have the same problem as with all cool languages of they didn't develop a writing system, um, right. so they didn't have anything to write history down with and uh, until they were like forced to. Um, and so now they, they just use katakana right. um, with like two extra letters. Um, 
So that's the main reason they don't have much written history that we know about. Right. Um, but I do have three books um, in the notes that I've been reading through um, that seem good, that are in English. <laughs> um, I basically like went and looked for every single book on LibGen with Ainu in the title, and so I found a few that are useful. Um, so I'm going to share the show notes, obviously, like I always do. So if you're interested to read more, uh, check those books out. They are free because they're pirated. Um, and yeah, I guess uh, I guess we should just wrap it up before we keep talking. <laughs> so thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you, Chris and Una, for coming on and uh, talking about this with me. Holy shit. Um, I need to eat. <laughs> <laughs> I guess all I can really conclude with is I wish I knew more. Oh, shit. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck. Kill okay, him. Kill it. him. Okay. <laughs>